The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, and adult themes. It also jumps around in time and space. It's very confusing. Ah yes, it certainly is confusing. There are now more docks and more spots on board services, allowing you to sit next to each other. Remember, you must wear a face mask on public transport at all times. Do your bit for a safer trip. For more information, visit transportmsw.info. We begin on Monday, the 8th of November, around 9am on a rainy morning at Katoomba Railway Station. And this New South Wales Trainlink XPT is just pulling up at Platform 2. Saturday, the 20th of November, 2021. Yes, I told you this would be confusing. Our guest is Father Carl Sinclair, Catholic priest in the Diocese of Bathurst. He's based in Orange, in the central tablelands of New South Wales. And that's where I'm heading. We talk about a certain controversial opinion piece on the proles. I wouldn't be so horrified with Prue Goward's article if not for the fact that the party that she represented are, are constantly attacking the poor. We discuss the apocalypses, plural. I think we, we have little apocalypses in that, you know, true sense of the word in our life all the time, in a sense. And, and yeah, we do mention that Jesus bloke. How did Jesus spend his birthday every year is a question <laughs> that, I mean, we, we, know, we know he liked a party and a gathering and a meal. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Proletarian Apocalypse in Orange with Father Carl Sinclair. Before we get to uh, Father Carl, though, a little bit about the train. Not too much, because this isn't a Gunzel pod. Uh, when the New South Wales XPT stock uh, first arrived uh, from about 1981, I thought they were so cool. They were streamlined. They were based on the British Rail Class 125 high-speed train, HST, which could do 125 miles an hour, hence the name. That's 200 kilometres an hour. But over the years, I learned that the XPT uh, doesn't go that fast, only 160 kilometres an hour. And even then, they rarely make that speed. Uh, because from Katoomba to Orange, for example, as it goes uh, down from the Blue Mountains and into the Central Tablelands, well, if you are flying, if you're a plane or a swallow, African or uh, uh, European, it's 120 kilometres or so. By road, because it winds around, it's 150 kilometres. So to drive, it takes just over two hours. But the railway still has a heap of Victorian era curves, really tight curves. So it's even longer and even slower because the train has to slow down to make the curves. It ends up taking a little bit over three hours. Still, the, the trains are comfortable enough. Uh, the food isn't 
completely disgusting. And the bar opens at midday. Uh, so there's that. And look, I wanted to catch the XPT a few more times before their replacements start entering service from 2023. Much better trains. Have a look at the link on the podcast website. But there's still going to be 21st century trains running on 19th century railway alignments. So, hurrah, they're not going to be any faster. Anyway, let's zoom ahead a day uh, to Tuesday the 9th and chat with Father Carl. Father Carl, welcome again to the air. Still, Gary, and it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So we are in Orange now this time. Tell me about Orange in a few sentences. Look, Orange is a, I mean, it's an old town, one of those old Central West towns that sort of came up through the 1800s and it's grown and developed and stayed like most of those towns for quite a while. And then all of a sudden in the last sort of bit, it's become quite a destination. It's become a big big provider of government services to local local areas it's become the big hospitals become a big central part of of the identity of orange and indeed lots of people work at the hospital um and of course it's growing and growing as a tourist town so you've sort of got the old uh, you know who have lived here since they were you know 12 in the in the 1910s i'm, I'm exaggerating um and, and then you've got many people who've only been living in town you know in the last 10 years so it's it's quite an interesting dynamic and an interesting place to be orange well let's go for a bit of a drive and <laughs> check it out um lots of lots of tourism is is really everybody's goal um you can see it. I mean, it's a very tourist-friendly town. It is. Um, Good distance from Sydney. I was at what? Yeah, you know, it's it's almost day trip territory, but yeah. certainly perfect for weekend a weekend away. Weekend away, exactly. Um, plenty of good food around. There's some very nice restaurants in Orange. Uh huh. Okay, that's Holy Trinity. That's your opposition that's, that's there. The, Ang- the, the Anglicans. Yeah, I think it's. Is it still closed? It's being refurbished. They're doing some work in there, so. It's um, of course the funny situation where the Orthodox tend to use the Anglican churches when they come to town to do things like baptisms and weddings. All right, because they don't have one of their own. <laughs> but now they're suddenly having to ask us because because that, that's closed and they want they obviously don't want you know the Uniting Church or anything like that. With <laughs> so it's um, yeah, it's been, it's created a funny sort of little situation on that front. The central part of town still has lots of buildings from the 1800s, back when this was uh, both a gold rush town. Uh, In fact, there's still a gold mine close by. uh, And the centre for the the region, all the farming and agricultural zones around it. Uh, St Joseph's is one of the Catholic churches. Uh, Again, dates back to the 1800s. Classic red brick design. You can see churches like this all over regional Australia. And, of course, there's plenty of pubs and buildings that clearly used to be pubs and plenty of houses dating back to that period too. So there was a, we just drove past a house that was in the paper today that I think published for, uh, that sold for $2 million. What? Uh, the second house in Orange this year to sell for $2 million. So if you want to get a sense of what's going on with the housing market in Orange, um, that's the top end of it. Uh, <laughs> well, the area we're driving through here has to my left a lot of Federation era and up to about 1910s. Yeah. Uh, standard houses and cottages which are 
very much an Australian style. Like you take one look at them and go, that is that is regional Australia. Yeah. But they are looking pretty schmick and not cheap. Yeah, but now they'll be for a town like Orange. Oh, we're gonna pretend that. that no, 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 that's that, that was a green light. <laughs> I couldn't stop, officer. I swear. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as you come out this way, I mean, this is sort of the one of the main roads. We've got motels. We've got the big golf course to the left. I think is that. Yep. Duntry League, I think, is the golf course, which is the fancy one. Um, I think there was three golf courses in Orange, and now there's two. Um, but is yeah. is golf the work of the devil? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. Golf's okay. Although I did <laughs> I, a couple of years ago, I was. Well, I have a friend who got stupidly into golf, and he came out to Mudgee and convinced me to go out and play golf with him. And I had, it'd been a while since I'd played golf, and I. Uh, I think I retired on the 13th hole. I just retired from golf for all for, for, for all and forever to, ever time. Um, it's not my favourite sport. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> There's a sign there with an arrow pointing which said wineries. Now this we won't do that today. Every every arrow and sign, like basically everywhere, there's wineries. But a lot of them are sort of to the west, down Cargo Way, down um, in down the road towards Forbes. You get a lot of wineries. You had a couple on the Molong Road. Um, it's more towards Millthorpe. Everywhere, everywhere there's wineries around Orange. It's and it's a big part of what drives that tourist dollar because if you can, you know, go on a bit of a bit of a hop through all the wineries, it's um, a pretty good way to spend a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, um, it's even better. Just uh, as someone who grew up with connections to the wine industry, in Adelaide, if you actually buy some fucking wine while you're, <laughs> while you're doing that. <laughs> Oh look! Well, I tend, to, I tend to, even when I'm taking someone who I know is probably not going to buy, I'll take them to one winery and I'll always at least buy something. Yeah. <laughs> I won't play the whole tape of of our drive around Orange because uh, because it gets a bit boring. Uh, but I will say, around the northern parts of the town, it's it's expanding quite rapidly. Orange's population's around forty thousand at the moment, and it's it's growing fast. In the northern areas, it could be any upper-middle-class suburb in Australia, really. But there's also a rapidly expanding light industrial area near the old working-class part of town, and and still there, uh, there's plenty of wooden and fibro cottages uh, which... You know, have not been renovated, shall we say. Uh, this isn't a real estate podcast either. Uh, but if you go then round to the south, there is indeed that huge brand new regional hospital. And, and yeah, it's it's big. But yeah, so the hospital's here. I obviously have to come up here quite a bit to visit dying people. But um, and it's, it's a, I'll tell you what, it's having to hike out here in the middle of the night which i've only done a couple of times is, is not fun um i much prefer it was in the center of town one of our priests in the town of oberon the hospital is literally across the road from the presbytery and i just think call me anytime sure why not but it's uh you've almost got to take a full 45 minutes hour out of your day you know which is well worth doing it's part of the ministry but it's uh yeah because it's so far removed it's uh it's, it's an effort but um but yeah this whole south is like a betting man would think this is what's going to develop next, but there's some questions. Some people seem to be, from what I'm hearing, that maybe it won't. Like, you know, there's. Do you think, especially with the hospital here, a lot of the workers might like to live a little bit closer to work and things like that? Um, not that when you live in Orange, you live that far from work. <laughs> anyway. Uh, 
two things I want to say at this point. One is this is not investment advice. <laughs> and two, if, if you are listening to this and you are a Catholic, please consider dying somewhere close to where your local priest lives. So when when he, I was about to say when he or she comes, no, he, Catholic Church, when he comes to administer last rites, he doesn't have to drive so far. <laughs> Definitely not a complaint. It's, it's always a pleasure and an honour. It'd be just nice if the hospital was like, you know, a couple of kilometres closer to, to town. <laughs> the centre of town. Now, I did think that Orange was, uh, how should we put this, kind of white, at least when compared to Sydney or Melbourne or, or one of Australia's bigger cities. But one thing I wasn't expecting Carl to tell me about was that in his in his flock, he's got a bunch of Catholics uh, with roots going back to India, specifically to Kerala and the Malabar coast of southern India. This is something I did not expect. I hadn't thought of Kerala as a, a, a kind of Catholic stronghold. You don't know your Indian history. Yeah. I know, I clearly don't. <laughs> Kerala is the, the, the church in Kerala. They trace their roots back to the, the Apostle Thomas. Um, and indeed are in their tradition. That is as in Doubting Thomas. As in Doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, as the disciples went to the ends of the earth, some of, one of them they say made it all the way to Kerala. Okay. And, um, Do we believe that is the... Ca- well, well who, knows? who knows? I mean, there's, there's no reason to think it's not, uh, right. really. There's no, there's no strong evidence against, so <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good story in a way, but it's it's they're definitely an ancient church. They definitely have very ancient um, connection, so they have their own liturgy. Like, the, the, if you were to go to the, one of their masses, it would look quite different to a normal Catholic mass, and just in the same way that the Maronites and the, the Ukrainian Catholics and the Syriacs and the, the Chaldeans, uh, all these little Eastern churches that maintain their own right and maintain communion with Rome. But enough uh, ancient church history for now. Uh, let's settle down for a proper chat. <laughs> Carl, I, I need to ask you this. Are barcodes satanic? Um, there's no teaching that I've ever come across against barcodes. Um, but could they be satanic? It's possible, I suppose. It may, maybe individual barcodes, not, not as a category. Well, I, I, <laughs> I mention that because I, I stumbled across this video from the Shepherd Ministries of 215 Anderson Road, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Oh, well. Uh, you did this to me last time. Ah, uh, well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll play it to you. The mark of the beast, says the uh, first slide on screen. And then... The world economy is evolving. Is there any doubt that our buying and selling system will be conducted with a mark, with credit transactions rather than cash? Is it this path that leads to destruction? The day of a cashless society is fast approaching. Envision a world where cash transactions are virtually obsolete, where workers receive credits in place of dollars. If your job now pays you $5.35 an hour, that would translate to 5.35 hundredths of a credit an hour. 
The first set is always the same number. It never changes. It's always there. That number is 666. You can use this decoding process on virtually any product sold today. Learn to count the number 666 and teach the method to your friends. Then inform as many people as you can. Family, friends, even your skeptical next door neighbor. Yep. That okay. doesn't convince you that barcodes are satanic. Does that convince me that barcodes are satanic? No, look, it doesn't. It, what it does tell me is, is that moral panic will never go away. There's always something to respond to. There's always this or that culture war to fight. And sometimes it's about something as simple as barcodes, which, you know, in themselves are a pretty neutral technology, I feel. <laughs> you, you, would, you would have thought. Look, we will come back to uh, the culture wars in a little bit. Because I know that that's something on your mind. Indeed. But but related to that, and I'm not sure whether you know this is all a bit out of date now, but uh, last month, back on the 20th of October, Prue Goward, former mm. um, Liberal Minister in the State Government of New South Wales, now columnist for the Australian Financial And, and Human Rights Commissioner, I think, before, before um, that, didn't she? She was something like... Sex Discrimination, that was Commissioner, it. yes, yeah. in New South Wales. Mm. Headline, why you shouldn't underestimate the underclass. They are damaged, lacking in trust and discipline, mm. and highly self-interested. But the poor are still a force that Australia needs to properly harness. Look, um... Objections to the word harness aside, which, you know, could have some very interesting sort of megalomaniac, you know, billionaire with them all strapped up to some, you know, new renewable power source. Um, <laughs> look, putting that one aside, I read this article and I was just horrified. It was the, the big problem with the article in it, and it really underlies so much of the thinking of the way many of the people in the ruling class operate which is that they consider the poor almost a category and they treat the poor as a category. Um, the poor people... Well, she called them the proles. She called them, she called them the proles, which, again, is not a new term. And it's, you know, it, it goes back to the Roman Empire. But it's... To, the, the, what we lose by just considering poor people as a category and not individuals that are themselves striving, that are themselves maybe not striving, but maybe that are just people like they're people they're human beings they're fellow human beings in our society like that so much gets lost and and it's and it's a problem i think so much in the way government operates it's it, like i wouldn't be so horrified with prue goward's article if not for the fact that the party that she represented are, are constantly attacking the poor you know we, we see it over and over with the centrelink stuff um the, 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 that 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 hasn't caused more outrage than it did and it caused a little bit of outrage but the it really should have caused a lot oh, more, I think, in, in our view. Yeah. It's extreme. And again, like I, I think too much is being made of the of the JobKeeper stuff and the fact that some businesses, you know, I think some people are getting a bit over the top with that. But it does say a lot about society. It was, it, was, it was several, like, tens of billions oh, of no, dollars it's, going it's, to companies that weren't exactly struggling. Of course. And look, the, the, that's right. And any anything like that is going to be rorted. And the problem I, I have with the attacks aren't so much that it was misused. It's that they become an attack on any sort of, of government support. And that government support package was targeted for a very specific reason. 
But that there's such a double standard in the way we treat those who cheat the system, or even in the case of a lot of the robo debt stuff, didn't even cheat the system. And but you just, did say <laughs> cheat the system with scare yeah, quotes. Yeah, that's right. I did. It, yeah. I did because they weren't cheating the system a lot of the time. It was just the computer decided that they were based on you know arbitrary rubbish, bad programming, and. Look, the, and, but it's just one of a thousand examples of, of the way, you know, we don't care about poor people. We don't care about Indigenous people. And, and I don't even just mean the Indigenous in Australia. I look at so much of what goes on in the globe. Um, you know, the, the Amazonian tribes and the way they're, they're being treated by American corporations looking to make money and not just American, international, global corporations. Um, the poor are always the ones who suffer. And... This article was just, it just really got my goat because it, it was it was saying the quiet part loud. It was like we we, 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 we all know it. We all know it's true that they're, that they're, that they're not people who are poor and not looked on as human beings by so many people. But to say it is just and to say it and think it's not going to cause a response like. It was bizarre. I mean, I, I have a link to it, of course, on the podcast webpage. It It is worth reading because, as someone described it, it is just fractally terrible. You're yes. like, the more you read it, the more bizarre. I mean, it starts by, by quoting Orwell's 1984. Mm. Um she says, quote, I believe my lifelong fascination with the underclass began when I pondered that declaration of independence against a futuristic form of government oppression, mm. meaning 1984, which has turned out to be not so futuristic. Well, maybe. I, I do want to challenge futuristic because 1984 was published in 1948. It was. 73 years ago. Now, 73 years before that, it was 1875. The US Civil War had just ended. Well, a few years the telephone was just coming out and mm. people were saying that's going to be useless uh, Thomas Edison a couple of years after that said that fooling around with alternating current is just a waste of time brackets that's because Nikola, Tes Nikola Tesla was fooling around <laughs> with alternating current and Edison had all the patents on direct, direct current, current and yeah. investment and so on so take that then anyway then Prue Goward said as a shopkeeper's daughter I understood poor people Clearly, she didn't. Like yeah. that's the that's the that's the ridiculousness of the article is that she was observing them as a category, and and, and then she compares them to the stoats and weasels of the wildwood in the wind in the willows. I mean, what, just, sorry, what? Yeah, look, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, and any attempt to try and make it make sense is only just ends up with offence being being received. Well, she said that she was deeply disappointed that her column had been so badly misunderstood to which I say well you're the writer it's kind of your job to make sure I don't misunderstand Indeed. it but she said opinion pieces are meant to provoke and I have applied a Marxist analysis which some might say is old-fashioned which which explains to me why people judge others as unworthy and, and, and well there was nothing Marxist about no, it I, I, and I think that that's goes to another problem in the way that Marx is just not read or understood by anyone. The amount of people that use the phrase Marx as the, boogie Marx as the boogeyman phrase, or in Proust's case, as if she was doing Marxist analysis, which is clearly not true, um, it just shows a complete contempt and you know lack of willingness to engage in ideas that aren't their own. I, I don't know. It was, it was really awful. <laughs> We will come back to this this sort of thing a little later, but with a, a Catholic Church twist on Indeed. it. Indeed.
It has become the uh, habit now in this podcast for me to uh, mention one of my dreams. I'm blaming Vivica Wiley for that. Hi, Viz. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that, that um, this is from last week as you're listening to it. I dreamed I was in a little apartment which had a plant-filled atrium and a deep pile cream carpet mm. and there was an old TV and VCR, video cassette recorder, mm. playing a tape of a show about a, a new show so why it was on VCR, I don't know, <laughs> about BMW's new range of petrol engines, including one for, for a small helicopter. Okay, yes. That was just on the television. Sure. Okay. Now, from behind the furniture emerged some kittens. There were, there were a couple of cats in the place, but for some reason we hadn't realised that one of the cats was pregnant. There were now kittens, and they were cute and playful and delightful, blah, 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 all of that, except for one. And one of the kittens was like a complete mutant it was very long and thin so you can imagine smaller than my little finger but about 20 centimeters long and it had about 40 or 50 pairs of legs sort of like a caterpillar except they were little cat's legs so they were kind of cat hips and it had it it, it was like its vertebrae when it had had grown had just replicated out you know genetically this is terrifying this is quite terrifying (laughs) and it had a little face about the size of the my little fingernail it was a ginger tabby it was a little hungry and i'm mewling so i i mean it was horrifying and i went to the fridge to get it something to eat but then i noticed that it was already looking like it had eaten something like a snake that had eaten a couple of rats over a course of a few days it had these swollen segments it was clearly in pain and i was thinking what what am i going to do i i look i have to preserve this for science but i'm not I, I i don't i don't want to kill it i don't think i could face quite killing it except uh, so anyway i and it was just i was started looking for jars but then my alarm clock went off and, and i woke up <laughs> um i i mean i know dream interpretation is not really your gig <laughs> No, it's not. Um, uh, look, it's not something I've studied at all. I, 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 I'm told that dreams about flying and ones about sex, and so I don't know if there, yeah, there I, was no there was no flying in this dream. So that's about as far as my dream interpretation goes. There was goes. definitely nothing related to sex in any way in this <laughs> in this in this dream. <laughs> Dear God, um, I, I don't. I, don't uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about dream interpretation. I mean, it's just random stuff in your head. I think. But look, well, do, look do, there's not. I, I mean, I don't think there's much to it generally. Although I do, I do have a dream that I used to have a lot. Oh, okay. Which was I don't don't seem to happen anymore. It wasn't so much the dream itself, but it was what would sort of eventually happen. The dream would be going along swimmingly, and then all of a sudden I'd be sort of like quasi semi conscious. And realised that the day in the dream was after some major event I'd have coming up. And so I'd suddenly get this massive rush of anxiety. And it was usually something I was anxious about anyway. So the anxiety would like penetrate the dream because this I'd suddenly miss this event. Even though the event was in the future in real life. And, and I'd be aware of this fact. And then all of a sudden I'd have no pants on. Um, and, and I'd be, you know... It, it almost, Not having any pants on is a thing that a lot of people have in well, their dreams. Well, that's right. I yeah. mean, I, again, I don't think I've had this for about 10 years, this dream. But, you know, suddenly you're in a situation with no pants and you're doing your best to sort of not embarrass yourself and get back to a place where you can source pants. And that becomes the the next part that, of the dream. That's we, the we, next we, challenge. <laughs> in, in my dreams, it is, it is always I'm in my underpants 
and a dressing gown, but the dressing gown is too small. So oh I keep oh. like tying it around my waist, but it keeps falling so that, open. And that, that has an anxiety element to it, I think. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not a dream interpreter, and it's you know it might all be a bit of a load of rubbish. I don't really know, but look. I do dreaming's, find, dreaming's fascinating. It is. Look, I do find when, I, I, when I'm sometimes really stressed, yes, I do then have dreams and there are elements uh, <laughs> in the dream related to uh, uh, to what that's, that's about. Right, that's right. But then often it resolves itself. In the morning, I wake up and a, a lot of the anxiety has <laughs> subsided because Indeed. during the night my brain is... Indeed, and, so and, worked it out and maybe this is the point of dreaming. Maybe it's so our brains do do, do this reset. I, I, again, I don't brain chemistry. Brain. I did. I did one hundred and one psychology at university, and the brain stuff was the thing that interested me least. So I'm oh, probably, okay. probably the worst person to talk to about this. All right, we'll change the topic. <laughs> At this point uh, in the podcast, Father Carl, uh, who you will recall you are a Catholic priest. I am. Um, Reverend Daniel in Canada, in Toronto, is an, uh, an Anglican priest. Well uh, worth a follow on Twitter. He is well worth a follow on Twitter. He's a, a modern um, gay married Canadian Anglican priest, which is a number of challenges in there for the Catholic indeed, Church. Indeed, which, indeed. <laughs> which, which we won't go into today. No, not right now. It's above your pay grade, I understand. C- certainly, certainly. Uh, but but he tweeted the other day, I like that. Do I like that Christmas season begins November 1st? No. Do I want to see Christmas trees and hear Christmas carols for two months? No. Is it going to happen anyway? Yes. Do we need to publicly complain about it every year as if we're the first person to point it out? No. He says, keep Advent and celebrate Christmas as you wish to. Let others define and celebrate Christmas however and whenever they wish to. You don't own Christmas. And if you do keep Advent and begin Christmas with Midnight Mass on the 24th and keep it for all 12 days, don't be that smug person who has to let everyone know that you're doing it correctly. You honestly don't get points with Jesus for that. And I thought that was, that was stunning. Look, he's right. Um, I've probably been guilty of it myself. Just this, oh, haven't potentially, we, haven't we all? But potentially just this week. Um, I've got a little story to tell you. I, oh, please do. Just just a couple of days ago, my my sister's just moved into her first home that she's owning um, in in Sydney, and um, she's, I think she's been a bit excited and perhaps been a bit frustrated with everything going on with the. Uh, with the pandemic, so she decided to put Christmas decorations up uh, up over the weekend and oh, put them on Facebook. And you know, me being the smart ass brother that I am, said um, it's a bit early, isn't it? <laughs> and um, well, oh, she, yeah. she she was not quite happy with my response. I got I got a couple of private messages and then a phone call. Um, <laughs> so look, I think perhaps I too need to listen to Reverend Daniel's advice and just uh, <laughs> let things lie. I, I remember in the past you and I have discussed hot cross buns, perhaps on Twitter, and that, that yes. that's another whole phenomenon of this stuff and yeah it's one of the my least favorite uh culture wars is the is the presence of hot cross buns in shops because fruit buns are quite nice and if well, people, people yes. want to eat them by all means it's you know and, and if you like and uh, this might be a bit radical but but if you just like the fruit buns you can just treat them as a nice fruit bun which Indeed. happens to have a cross-shaped cross, design cross on them. On exactly exactly and you know they look there they were another manifestation of the same thing, and you know, it's you can scream at the at the wind, shake your fist at the clouds, you know, Abraham Simpson style, but it's it's not going to really achieve anything, is it? That's and right. 
Christmas is a good thing. Look, I, I, I certainly wouldn't be putting up my Christmas decorations yet, but if others choose to, who am I to judge? Mm. On the other <laughs> hand, of course, the uh, uh, the um, the Orthodox Christians are wrong with their wrong calendar. Oh well, look, that's definitely <laughs> true. In fact, it, it, it was it was funny as you were you were quoting that idea about doing it correctly. It's one of the thing jokes that or moments that penetrated my memory of from the television show Downton Abbey, where they were putting up the Christmas decorations and there was a comment about them being at the right time and the wrong time. And, and she, the, the lady Mary, I think was her name, said, uh, yes, we do things correctly here at, at Downton Abbey, as if to say. <laughs> it was just this, this pompous disdain that I, I, I quite appreciated <laughs> at the time, but also probably recognised as maybe not, not the most important thing to, uh, to create a fight over. Can I ask you, when you grew up, um, was, uh, I mean, apart from religious aspects, was, was Christmas a big thing in your family? Very much so. It's, my mother especially is, is very fond of Christmas. She always went out of her way to make Christmas a great celebration. And indeed, the family Christmas has been something that we do every year. And it's the same dishes that every, every year. <laughs> and that only get weird out for Christmas. And, and I look forward to them every Christmas. Like, it's just comfort to be able to go now I, I usually travel on Christmas Day if I, if I can even make it to Christmas lunch well I was about to say yeah it's, it's, it's kind of your gig now well that's right I mean I've, the, the parish priest here has been very accommodating last year and again he's going to do it this year allowing me to get home for Christmas lunch and it's there's a real comfort in you know those traditions that began back then and now continuing with my nieces and well my nephews uh, not nephews ah, with my nieces I have two nieces um and you know it's it's the continuation of these same things that we all enjoy so much and it's my brother especially it's fascinating he was the one that just wanted to open the presents and he hasn't changed even though he's now in his <laughs> 30s and um you know he's he, he's got the same excitement i think with his own daughters that he can't wait till they open their presents uh which is a beautiful thing so in our family um we always used to go and visit a certain uncle's place mm. he, he he and his wife would always put on the big big spread and they had a uh, a big backyard it was always out in the sun in the backyard so it was always incredibly hot and mm. we'd all get the sunburn mm. but there was all of those standard australian things there was chicken because back in the day yep, roast yep. chicken from the shop was an incredibly huge luxury yep. uh and all of the standard salads mm-hmm. and um southwark bitter beer which mm. oh, i mean all the kids got a taste of beer at christmas even if they were years, years old uh that was that was kind of a thing that happened and i thought it was disgusting but that was fun but yeah it, it was that thing we all had to do yeah oh I, that 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 made it sound like it was a burden it was far from being a burden but that was the tradition yes course, we went to this course. uncle's place yeah, yeah. Well, you know it's, it's it's always a highlight and indeed the, the the some of the more memorable christmases were the ones where things stood out like where you know my auntie had a complete disaster i think she did this pumpkin thing that went in the freezer or maybe i'm getting christmases mixed up all i know is that there was a few the cooking disasters tend to stand out from christmas more than perhaps anything else because everyone's <laughs> the expectations are there right well, it's the it, stress of getting it right it's, it's when we try to do something different that things tend to go wrong at christmas it's when we stick to what we know that we we tend to, to have a, a, a beautiful simple christmas you know no, it's always a, it's always a joy and a highlight of my calendar how do you think jesus celebrated christmas Oh gosh! Well, it was—I mean, the, the historical debate I whether say, it was his birthday is another another question altogether. But I, I know, but, but um, <laughs> that's a very silly question. Um, uh, though, of course, Easter was a lot worse for him. Um, but but Christmas, in in that sense, they 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 travelled to Bethlehem. 
Well, indeed. That, that was, was for the census. That was though, the was census, that, exactly the first time. Look, what, how did Jesus spend his birthday every year is a question <laughs> that, I mean, we, we know we know he liked a party and a gathering and a meal, so there's uh, there's no reason to suggest that, I mean, were birthdays acknowledged as a thing back then? I'm not, I'm not I up on know. my history. That's a, there's, that's a, a, there's a very live question. Was was the rolling over of another year something that was was significant? Or, or did they acknowledge other things like, you know, the, the circumcision day? or I it's a whole area of history that I'm now ignorant of and I, I could have given a flippant answer, but instead I couldn't help myself but ask the next question. And, and now we're at, at, in a space where I haven't given you an answer at all. So, Fantastic. <laughs> I, will, I will drop something in uh, into the housekeeping house segment, which comes up after this. So yes, Jesus's birthday. I have discovered after literally seconds of googling a site called christianity.stackexchange.com. The programmers amongst you will immediately be giggling. Uh, and there is a page called Did Jesus's disciples celebrate his birthday? And the short answer is probably not. Uh, the one of the people there says there's no tradition in Judaism, presumably of that period, of celebrating birthdays. Otherwise, like the Bible would have a list of birthdays from Noah and Abraham to Moses, King David, many others, but no such thing exists. Now, there there is a whole thing which says that maybe certain individuals who were born on certain important days in Israel's history ancient Israel, not the current one, uh, that might have been uh, noted. Uh, but certainly when you look within Judaism, the Torah, uh, Judahite Christians or or whatever, there, there are no birthdays listed as things um, to celebrate. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't celebrate your birthday, but the custom in those days was apparently not uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the Jews of the period used a lunar calendar. So what does the date of birthday even mean in that context? And also the celebration of birthdays kind of had hints of pagan practices such as astrology, which in the Judahite custom, which is the, the group we're talking about here, that was actually against the law. So there you go. No big birthday parties for Jesus. It's something we've added later, which which is interesting when you think about it. Christianity.stackexchange.com. Good, good heavens. The next episode of this podcast uh, will be next week with the wonderful Dr. Alice Gorman, Dr. Space Junk. We are recording on Tuesday, so if you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic for Dr. Gorman, I'll need them uh, on Tuesday or by Tuesday the 23rd of November, let's say by 2pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, I, you know, I reckon some spacey stuff, uh, well there's been so much space in the news, hasn't there, just lately. Uh, this podcast, and oh, I should say beyond that, I'm not sure there there is then the sixth episode of the Spring Series 2021. I haven't booked a guest yet. It will be a non-bloke. I know that much because we're a bit light on 
uh, light on the women in this series. Sorry about that. Uh, so I will uh, attempt to fix that. For this episode, though, uh, it's thanks very much uh, to generous listeners such as Matt Arkell, who's a new subscriber. Thank you very much, Matt. Simon Harris, the ever-generous Simon Harris. Thank you so much, sir. And one person who's uh, remaining anonymous. Thank you for your tips for this episode. And of course, this episode and the others in the series is thanks to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Spring Series 2021 possible campaign. Uh, This episode, let me just thank uh, in particular six media freedom citizens who contributed a basic tip. Thank you. You're listed on the website. Uh, And of course, all the foot soldiers for media freedom who gave a slightly less basic tip, as we call it. That includes so many familiar names here, and, and that's great. Andrew Kennedy, Bob Ogden, David Heath, Garth Kidd, Katrina Jetty, Kimberly Heitman, Matt Bowden, Peter Blakely. Peter Blakely, again, for some reason, I though that's why the people try and bump it up to get the targets of the possible campaign, don't they? Thank you, Peter Blakely. Peter McCrudden, Regina Huntington, Stephanie Papworth, Susan Rankin, Tony Barnes, Wolf Coughlin, and three people who choose to remain anonymous. Thank you to you. If you would like to join those generous people in keeping this podcast going, and, and I know you want to do that, don't you? Head over to the9pmedic.com slash tip, the9pmedic.com slash tip. Consider taking out a subscription because that that just means a regular payment, but that's how you get trigger words or a conversation topic and things like that. And it means I don't keep hassling you. Well, I will. I'll hassle people like this every episode. Anyway, uh, if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. You can just keep listening and enjoying. But if you do enjoy it, please at least tell your friends and family about the episodes you like because the more people we have listening, the more people become supporters. Wow. The9pmedic.com slash tip. Okay, Father Carl, it's trigger word time. I mean, I've got a couple. There's one uh, sent in especially for you. Especially for me. That's by Alyssa Harris, who's expect problems on on Twitter. And uh, the trigger word is apocalypses or apocalypses, depending on how you want to. And, and and she says the plural is important here. Indeed, the plural is what's caught my my ear. I'm curious why she's gone with the plural. Um, well, I'm guessing, you know, things that have been called a potential apocalypse and not just uh, the biblical one, which I will ask you to explain because well. it's something I never had <laughs> my head around, but also nuclear war, climate change, sure, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Well, I mean, and, so and it, so it, what, what is all this? It's, well, it's worth going to the root of the word, of course. The, the apocalypse is, you know, it's translated in the Bible often as the book of Revelation and the idea of Revelation is because that's really what the Greek is. It means a, a revealing of things, almost a, an open ending of the of the truth. So the way we use it in common parlance isn't always necessarily related to that. You know, when a, a nuclear apocalypse isn't really revealing a new, the, the, the real truth of things, it's just <laughs> wiping everything out and killing everybody. <laughs> but yes, but look, the whole idea of apocalypse generally i mean i i think we we have little apocalypses in that 
you know, true sense of the word in our life all the time, in a sense. These events that happen in our life that uncover, make help us to understand ourselves better, help us to understand each other better, help us to understand, you know, the world better and, and our place in it. Like it's a it's a concept that's constantly happening. So, which is why I'm I'm choosing to use that description because of the fact that she pluralized the word. Well, that's 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 true. And as we've established in the Christmas segment, you can be a pedantic. Oh, look, look, look fellow. I can be, I suppose. But look, I, I think it's an important way of thinking about things. And I think you did ask about it in in scripture, and that's another whole story altogether. But. That idea of, of of a deepening of understanding, a deepening of seeing things in new ways and, and sometimes more truthful ways, like it's an important part of who we are as we grow up and mature and become, you know, it's it's happening in our society all the time. I mean that in in a sense, what's been going on with, you know, the racial justice stuff, which you know, we'll get onto a bit more of that later, is is a form of apocalypse. Like it's it, as we these things that was seemed obvious to us that black people weren't the same as white people well actually when we look at them with new eyes when we've had this this revelation this apocalypse we that they're we, all we, actually people they're all actually people that's a, a shocking truth and it was a shocking truth for many people and it continues to be so but it it, it is a form of apocalypse wow that thank you, Alyssa. That that did not go where I was thinking it was going to go. But but you're right, Carl. Look, um, the other one, of course, we're going to draw draw out a random thing. Uh, now, as uh, with uh, Mark Humphreys a couple of episodes ago, uh, I did not bring the glass jar of transparency oh. with me um, on the train because so I have the uh, chemist warehouse uh, plastic bag of translucency. <laughs> And Carl, if I could ask you to uh, draw a trigger, draw, word. draw a, a oh, trigger word from there. I didn't get there. to do this last time. We recorded remotely. Yeah. All right. The trigger word is long lens. And it's who's that from? Gavin, Gavin Costello. Costello. Gavin long Costello. Long lens. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't trigger much at all for me. But long oh, lens. I know, I, I know what was happening in the media when. What was happening in the media when he wrote that? Remind that, me. That was uh, during COVID lockdowns and photographers would go to the beach and of use course. a long lens of people scattered all <laughs> over the beach, but due to the uh, visual compression effect of a telephoto lens or a long lens, it would appear to be uh, crowded. And there is, a, there is a moral angle to this. Of course. The, the, the folks at the beach were being portrayed as of course as breaking the rules breaking the rules yeah but they weren't and this is i mean look it's there you go you've, you've, you've completely triggered me on something that it is oh excellent it, it speaks to something that is just broken in our media like it's the the lack of the lack of truth telling in general is is staggering like it's i i, I there's this idea of journalistic ethics, like I don't know, this truth telling part of it. You've, you're you're a journalist still, well, <laughs> of sorts. Um, yeah, I mean, I I did not go to a journalism school, Indeed. but I I learnt the craft uh, on the job, as it were, at the ABC as a program producer and so on. And and uncovering the truth was was kind of what the job was. Indeed, uh, to portray it as it was, not to. Uh, try and spin it to your own thing. Now, there, there is a place for 
Um, I was about to say evangelical journalism. Um, well, activist, activist journalism yeah. is the word I'm looking for. But I think even if you're going to do activist journalism, it has to be from a place of truth. Like if you, yes. otherwise you just it's propaganda. It's 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 yes, a in the bad in the bad sense. modern sense of the word. It's you're not actually contributing to the common good. It's we're we're going to talk about it in a minute. But the speech that Pope Francis gave a few weeks ago, I think he called out the media in that speech as for this exact thing. It was one of the points that he challenged yes, he did. that the, the, the media needs to tell the truth. And you know, these long the long lens stuff was. You know, perhaps a, pretty, a somewhat benign example. It was mostly just to roll people up and sell papers. And, yeah, uh, you know. and, and and look, it's you know, it's nice. The photojournalist gets to have a day at the beach. That's right. That's uh, right. You get to see a few people, you know, with with look, you know, good looking bodies and all, and all of that. And and also, it's, I mean, so much of the media and news media does have certain uh, visual cliches. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's. You know, unfortunately, become one of them. What are the downsides, though, apart from you know not not being the truth that we that do you see in this sense of? Uh, I mean, we're we're making out. I mean, you know, if we want to throw it into a, a, the context, you know, we, we're saying these people are sinners. They are enjoying themselves. <laughs> the sin of pleasure at other people's expense. But that, that well, that was the. That was essentially it's so what it was. Oh, it's sensorious it, it, puritanism. It was, it was puritanism, but it was also coupled with an, an us against them thing that was rife through COVID. Like, if COVID needed anything, it needed a coming together. It needed us to mm. to work together, you know, for, for that common good, which at that time was, you know, stopping people from dying from this deadly disease. Um, generally seen as a good thing to do. That's yeah. right, and and you know there were ways of doing that. Like the government, for for better or worse, was the ones we put in 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 charge of that. And look, I'm of the opinion that the New South Wales Health and the New South Wales government did a pretty good job. Did they do perfect jobs? No. Could there have been things that they did better? Of course. Like, but that's true for everything. I would hate to be in the job myself. I, I don't think I would have necessarily done any better. But you know this this constant us against them mentality that that was emerging all throughout covid is just like that's not helping the common good that's not helping solidarity it's it's tearing at the heart of it which is i mean it's, it it speaks to the deep problems we have in our society solidarity is a thing of the past and and it shouldn't be it's it's a tragedy that it is and it's why i think we're in such a state with so many of the major issues that we're facing right now so what do we do apart from you know, bring out the guillotines, <laughs> the, 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 the slicey boys, as some people are calling them. I, I, I have the feeling, that, that despite the fact you're laughing, that you are broadly against the idea of the mass murder of the elite. Yeah, look, I don't think it's the correct path. Um, it, we, I think history has taught us that it doesn't necessarily end well anyway. As I mean, the French, I look to the French Revolution and everything that went on there. Um, I don't know the answer still. I, I honestly uh, think the answer is moral conversion, and I think that's that's tricky when people are so committed to not converting morally because of, it's good for them in their in their opinion in the short term that they don't. And know? by moral conversion, you're not referring to converting to any particular no, religion I, or other thing. It's I, I, to I, a sense of ethics and morality. To a sense of ethics and morality. To a sense that you know I belong to a, a whole people, which is which is and the whole of humanity. I. I belong to this planet as, you know, a creature on this planet. I belong to 
something bigger than myself that means that I have to do more than just, you know, get what's good for me. Um, you clearly wouldn't have been a fan of Margaret Thatcher then, saying there's no <laughs> such thing as society. No, no, definitely not a fan of that quote and, and the way that's been that used. Was bizarre. Well, I know, that was quite an odd thing to say. Well, it's, and it's an interesting one because it, I think, and again, this might go into where we're heading for the next topic. But this all does seem to come to does, a theme, doesn't it? It does, but... Um, it's all part of God's plan, people. It's the, all part of God's plan. One, one of the teachings of the church um, regarding the structure of society is this idea of the family as a building block of society. And the full quote of Margaret Thatcher, she went on to say there are individuals and there are families. Yes. Um, but the the problem that and – and you get that with the more Thatcherite-thinking Catholics often – uh, and they, you wouldn't call them that trite thinking Catholics these days. <laughs> um, but those that are much more in line with is, is that they do exactly the same pivot, is that they see the family as almost this independent unit that owes nothing to society, which is so against what the church was saying. It, it literally calls them the building blocks of society. And, and, and that's a society requires all those parts to, in order to come together. And, you know, that the, the, the family is good because it, is where we learn, you know, we were talking about Christmas before. We learn, you know, love and we learn friendship and we learn, you know, we, we sometimes Generosity learn, That's right, all these, all these sorts of things, yeah. we, you know. Um, it's a great thing. It's just that's not the be-all and end-all. We then come together to be part of this wider family, in a sense, this, this, this group of people that are in human fraternity with one another. And there's so many things that cut against it. And, you know, the long-lens photography is just a, sim- a symptom of all of those things. Thank you so much for that, Gavin Costello. He's been a supporter for a while. Um, uh, I'll tell you who, who he's on Twitter in a minute. Um, but that's been, that's been fabulous. Thank you for that. Now, dear listener, Father Carl um, sent me some homework. <laughs> to read before the uh, the recording of this podcast. And I must admit, it's fascinating stuff. This does go into an interesting uh, discussion, so we say, within the Catholic Church mm. at the moment, but one that is reflected across society generally, mm. very much so. Uh, and the first bit is, is from uh, the most reverend Jose H. Gomez, Archbishop of Los Angeles, uh, who uh, earlier this month um, delivered a, an address titled Reflections on the Church and America's New Religions. Now, what's interesting about this is I thought, oh, yeah, the new religions, he means the uh, prosperity gospel, um, uh, evangelical, Pentecostal thing, which is very much shaping America uh, and its thought at the moment. <laughs> but no, these new religions are what he calls the pseudo-religions of social justice, wokeness, identity politics, intersectionality, successor ideology. I don't know quite even what that one is. <laughs> um, so wokeness and things like the Black Lives Matter movement and all of this are pseudo-religions and are terrible. Uh, wow. Yeah. Look, it's... Where's this guy... I mean, where's he coming from? We can see where he's coming from, but where does this come from... Well, within the milieu of... Look, I think, I mean, part of it's knowing a bit of the history of what's, you know, the, the church has been in. And sort of about, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we had the great big Second Vatican Council, which ushered in a huge amount of change. Um, so can I say what I, what I think I know about that yeah, as a yeah, that would be good. That would be good. And we'll see how wrong I am. So Second Vatican Council, Vatican II. Vatican II. We call it Vatican 2.0 these days. <laughs> 
in the 1960s, 68, I want to say. I think it went from about 60. Oh, it went for a number of years. I think it was 62 to 65. Ah, 62 that's, to 65. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not the key point anyway. <laughs> but it was about making the Catholic Church more... I'm not sure of the verb I want to use, but with the people. So instead of a mass being in Latin, it would be in whatever the local language was. Uh, Instead of the mass being performed by the priests who are the ones who communicate with God, so they're they're at the altar and performing the ritual, but their back is to the Mm. congregation, uh, that they would turn around and include the congregation in this process. And... There was a whole bunch of other things, I assume, but that that was the key one that seemed to echo out into popular, popular culture, as I understood it. Which is hilarious as well, because technically both the things that you described weren't directly referred to at the Second Vatican. They were alluded to, one of them, but, <laughs> but they were more fruits that came from the, the reflection. Oh, okay. Ultimately, the, there, was, there was a few big things that were happening at the Second Vatican Council. The, the, the first one was very much to do with the way we receive what we call revelation. Um, it was re- resolving the big debates that took place 400, 500 years earlier at the Council of Trent um, regarding scripture and tradition and, and, and who the church was. And the great insight, which I think is key to understanding the whole thing, was the idea that the that divine revelation begins with God. And so that the things that come from God, it's, it, it ultimately is about the way we relate to God and the way we encounter God and listen to God. Um, in a personal way, in a personal or as way, a, as a and especially as a as a church, oh, as a, yeah. um, and so the word of God gets lifted. I mean, the, the, in, in the scripture, um, gets lifted to a much higher place in the church after the sixties. For for a period there, it was almost the domain of the Protestants. Um, so, if I can uh, contrast that with, if it's not coming out of your relationship through the scripture with God, that it's coming out of this is what our tradition is, Absolutely. this is what the church Absolutely. does. Absolutely. So we this is this is the correct thing because that's, this is what we do. That's right. Suddenly the whole thing becomes far more spirit led. And again, this is all very difficult to explain to to a secular audience, but it becomes far more spirit led um, in a we're listening to God, we're engaging with God sort of way. And then as a fruit of that some of that was the fact that when we actually show up for the liturgy, people should be engaged in what they're doing. Now, the decisions made because of that were the things you referred to, the priest facing the people. Right. It becomes the collective worship of the people, um, the, the the mass being in, in the vernacular. These are all fruits of this sort of idea that ultimately people should be participating in what, what, God, is, what God is doing. Um, but that also extends to the whole world. And so rather than being the church that was locked up in the buildings, the church suddenly is being proclaimed as the church that's out in the world and the, and the church that cares deeply about the things of the world. So that sort of was all happening in the Second Vatican Council. In the period that followed, there was a lot of debate and a lot of, as, as the world generally moved away from uh, a more, we'll call it a more traditional uh, personal moral teaching, um, particularly regarding sex and sexual matters, and so uh, uh, this is again this, this is the 1960s, this 1960s, is the 70s, sexual revolution exactly. Indeed, indeed, as it was called, indeed, and it it um, it came into the church too, and there were some moral theologians that were suddenly arguing. Actually, yes, it's a good thing to. Um, you know, being a bit more sexual liberated or, you know, contraception. There's a big debate in the church in the 70s about the place of contraception. Um, it fell down on the side of no. 
Um, but all these debates suddenly became very, very live. And in the sort of late 80s and especially through the 90s, there began almost this great moral push um, that was to, to do with effectively fighting back. It was effectively, you know, saying clearly, no, the church does not believe in this, does not believe in that. Um, as all these issues were fermenting themselves further in society, uh, it manifested itself a lot with the gay marriage stuff in, in recent years, as, you, as everyone's witnessed and seen. Um, it's going on with the, the euthanasia bill at the moment. Um, these moral issues, which look, I, I believe are important and they need to be dealt with well and they can't be dealt with flippantly, um, but they became, for some, the focus. They became where the church that's fighting for the tradition and these markers of, of what I would call culture war almost become what it is all about. Um, and so then that takes on a new life in the, you know, the current American scene, which has crept into Australia, is that we start to invent ideas that we, you know, you and I still know are basically conspiracy theories like cultural Marxism uh -huh. and and things like that which then all these other things that when you actually go back to the tradition of the church and especially the church of scripture you cannot argue against from a moral standpoint like racial justice like justice for the poor like you know the fact that big powerful men shouldn't be sexually harassing and assaulting women um because of what's been going on in the wider american context and the wider cultural context that all sort of somehow gets sucked into this place where these, in the eyes of the esteemed Archbishop, become a um, something to fight against, and and yet he's he's also <laughs> saying. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to read. It's uh, it's it's not well written. Can no. I just say that it's <laughs> it's a bit all over the place. But you 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 get the idea that he sees uh, the church in this case, the mm. Catholic Church, but Christianity more broadly mm. as being under threat yeah. by these concepts of. Social justice and uh, and and the like, wokeness, whatever that is. That's a word that we should never use. Never, because I mean, it, it doesn't even have a particular meaning. Well, it, it, it's interesting though. It does actually have a history in in um, the African American fighting back of this, some of this stuff. Like, it, well, that, I, yes, there's a there's a there's an, a Catholic scholar in Canada who has written extensively about wokeness and what it actually means and where its actual history is, and it has nothing to do with Karl Marx. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but then, I was about to say, speaking of Karl Marx, no, speaking <laughs> of Pope Francis, a very different character, although maybe not so much in the eyes of Archbishop um, Gomez. <laughs> um, the, the Pope Francis also put out a message this, uh, this month, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a title I didn't write down, but I, I've linked to it. But he actually says that, I'll read this bit. This this bit struck me as, mm. as most interesting. Do you know what comes to mind now when together with popular movements I think of the Good Samaritan? Do you know what comes to mind? The protests over the death of George Floyd. It is clear that this type of reaction against social, racial or macho injustice can be manipulated or exploited by political machinations or whatever. 
But the main thing is that in that protest against this death, there was the collective Samaritan who is no fool. This movement did not pass by on the other side of the road when it saw the injury to human dignity caused by an abuse of power. The popular movements are not only social poets, but also collective Samaritans. Now, his whole thing about the social poets was an interesting metaphor Mm, as mm. well. So the things that, a number of things strike me about, about what, what Pope Francis wrote. One is, it's in every day, very accessible speech. Now, mm. uh, he would have originally delivered that in... I think it was in Italian. Italian, yeah. but that, that translation is, mm. is mm. very accessible. Um, but yes, the, the, just the very direct way in which uh, that puts a very different point of view um, and, and, and they are, I'm not quite sure which one came out first. I don't think it matters because these, of course, are presumably issues that have been under discussion for course. some time. It's, this, it's, this is the, probably the clearest example of the competing visions of church that exist at the moment. And again, it's interesting with Pope Francis, like you go back to his history, which was in South America, you know, a country that was ravaged by the... Um, influence and the you know interventions of of the Americans, um, the CIA, the 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 corporations, the you know, and, and then of course in in Argentina, they had the um, the government, which was uh, was very much a, you know a friend of the Americans that was not doing quite so good things to the people. Um, like he's coming from a completely different experience of of life. It's not this. He, he's he's among the poor because the, the the Catholics were the poor. Like it's there's no, and this gets back to the Prugard thing in a way. They're not a category. They're they're the people that he he worked alongside, lived alongside. They were in his churches. Like you know, he was ministering to them directly. And so when he looks to something like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, he doesn't immediately want to react to it. He doesn't immediately want to say, well. Yes, okay, you might have some kind of a point, but this thing that you believe and this thing that you believe and this thing that you believe, that's all wrong. No, he looks to the heart of what, what they're fighting for and says, this is good. We, can, we, can, we should be alongside you. We can form fraternity. We can form common ground on this stuff. Um, and if there's stuff that we don't agree on, we can, we can dialogue on, in, on that stuff by be, actually being at the table together. These... Dialogue is a verb, people. Dialogue, Dialogue is, a verb. is a verb. Dialogue is very much Ooh. a verb, <laughs> and it's look, it's become a very prominent verb in the in the in the Catholic Church at the moment. We're we're currently heading towards a global what we call a synod on synodality, which sounds like a punchline what? to a hu- yes, exactly. But it's literally, I mean, you know, someone this will is say like from the thick of it, really, isn't it? An <laughs> outtake. It is a little bit, but if you actually get down to the heart of it, what Pope Francis is saying is is that the entire way we engage others is super important that that, that that if we can actually if we just stand at the sidelines and scream at each other nothing is achieved nothing we get nowhere nothing happens whereas if we actually are involved in each other's lives you know caring directly for one another listening to each other breaking bread in that you know great christian sense you know this is what jesus did after all we actually begin to encounter one another and then once we encounter one another we can listen to one another and and then we might actually come to a, a way forward that we're both part of. Like that's the that's what that whole process is about. And when we read these two speeches, Pope Francis is engaging in this process. He's looking at the world and and, and his heart is breaking with the people whose heart is breaking. Wouldn't say the same of Archbishop Gomez in the, in his speech. 
The third uh, bit of homework <laughs> was to read an article about the Napa Institute, which Indeed. I hadn't heard of before. But the headline of this piece, uh, again, there's a link to the whole thing. It, again, it's fascinating. Napa Institute expands to fight the culture war. And I'll just read two quick paragraphs. Maybe not all of them. Uh, the Napa Institute is a conservative Catholic organisation known for its annual high-end conference featuring wine tastings and cigars. Uh, and it's had a lecture series at the University of Notre Dame. And their first scheduled speaker in that series is uh, uh, US Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who uh, I think we can safely say is an extremely conservative <laughs> Indeed. Uh, judge on... on SCOTUS. Uh, the last annual conference, though, of the Napa Institute, there were 700 people gathered in person, thousands watching online, uh, as the speakers rallied uh, the participants to fight the culture wars, reject the Black Lives Matter movement, debunk what they called the lies behind gender ideology, and defend the church's teaching in the face of what organisers view as an increasingly hostile, secular society. Yeah. Um, is the church really, you know, facing such a hostile thing as that? Because another way of looking at it is that uh, the Christian the Christian churches still do have quite a privileged position in mm -hmm. in politics in 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 Western nations, um, and the, you know their views are heard mm -hmm. and. Uh, all right, perhaps the numbers of people going to masses have declined over the years, but there's still a lot of people who tick the box for one of the Christian religions in the census. Indeed. Look, I'm not, I'm of the opinion that we're doing okay from that perspective. I don't I, this persecution narrative, I think is almost offensive. Um, it certainly is hilarious to me when I look at what you know the call of discipleship is is ultimately to live live and go to the cross. Um, and I mean that, you know, we have a history and tradition of martyrdom in our church of people who have literally died because of what they believe in. Um, you know, when, when people are, are being told maybe they need to be a bit more polite to others or indeed other people think differently to you, you, you have to sort of suck it up and deal with that. Um, I mean, it does strike me that, <laughs> that being Archbishop of, of Los Angeles would, would not be an uncomfortable well, life. No, I, I, I look. I, I can't speak to the living conditions of of the Archbishop of Los Angeles, but my guess would be no. Um, and and indeed, at the same time, in a city like Los Angeles, um, with with a very large Hispanic population, mm. uh, you may notice Los. Oh, who is this? This is a complete aside, and I must find out who said <laughs> this. Someone was saying it was terrible how there was so much Hispanic influence uh, in American politics at the moment that we might end up with. You know, they might even rename Los Angeles to something Spanish. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> It's like, no, 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 no way. <laughs> That's quite hilarious. But given the, the 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 Hispanic population, if I can again lump them all together, sure. Uh, Catholicism is still, uh, shall we say, quite popular. Oh no, it is. There, yeah, yeah. And well, and, and there's another whole like the the, His, the Hispanic Catholics are a fascinating thing in the American Catholic Church. And this man's name is Jose oh, no. Gomez. He is, he, is, he is one of them. He is indeed one of them. Um, 
But it is they they I mean just in people talk about voting blocks and the and the, and the way the Catholics break down in you know who votes for who in in elections and things in America, the Hispanics definitely form a, a very different group to the uh, to, to to a lot of the the, the white Catholics in that mm. they are also generally a lot of them are working class and other poor and the ones on the minimum wage that is barely livable and the ones that are. You know, dealing with and they're dealing with the immigration issues is a real thing. Um, like this is the reality of their lives too, and it's it's. I mean, it, it it almost saddens me that you know one of their own is so. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Blind to their struggle. Um, that he would. That this would be the 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 thing that he rails against. I don't know. It, it, the whole thing disappointed me. Uh, still. Uh, yeah. I, well. Yes. Yes. And I and I've I I am enjoying your passionate explanation of, of just what is going on here. So we're in Australia. Is any of this reflected here? Well, it is. I think it is. It's it's definitely present in a lot of the engagement and you see that in the um, you see that in wh- where the church is making a name for itself these days. Um, it's when we get into the arguments on on these issues, and they're issues that are important. You know, we could get into the topic of euthanasia, and some of your listeners might not agree with with my own personal views on it. Um, but it's it, oh hello! Yeah. I, 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 this wasn't on my list, but no, do you no, have no. a view on this? I, I think I, I don't think euthanasia is a good thing. And look, you know, I think it's I think it's. It would be a worry if we were to get go down that track. I mean, you know, I, I do happen to believe in that from, you know, the, the church's teaching on, on life and things like that. But my, my deeper sense is that I just feel like it, we owe more to, to people and we can do more for people. And, and indeed, as palliative technologies are improving, um, Perhaps that's a be- that's a much better way to go forward. But anyway, that's a, that's another whole topic. Yeah, we. Uh, yes, that's a, <laughs> entire but, another podcast. But it's it's the current it's the current fight of of the church, and you, you don't see the same passion from a lot of the these Catholic groups these days on issues like. I mean, we we were talking about it as we drove around Orange, the the, the housing crisis that's mm, that's mm. coming in this country that. You know that people just won't be able to afford houses at all soon. Um, the way that the rate we're going, you know, it, that's that's going to be a massive issue of justice, and it's going to further deepen the, the the divides between the rich and the poor. And you know, I'd I'd love to hear the church um, leadership have more to say on that. Um, and indeed, in many ways, I am a leader in the church, at least locally. <laughs> well, um, and, and indeed, you, yes, you're having your say, and, and, and handfuls of people are now listening to this podcast, oh, perhaps even indeed, dozens. Indeed. But it's, it's, it is a real thing that, you know, ultimately the church, in my opinion, has a choice to be irrelevant to people's lives or to be deeply involved in their lives at every level and, and, and not in a like an interventionist way but in a we care about you way um, which really should be what we all are in society it's just that as we as we I mean there are real things to rail against in the in the trajectory of our world you know that the problem I had the biggest problem I had with Archbishop Gomez's talk is that you really you should be substituting the phrase secularism with capitalism because so much of so much of what he is railing against is is a fruit of 
of a society that's constantly trying to sell you something. Um, <laughs> he did. He did seem to conflate the two things. Yes, yeah. uh, and, and he he does indeed talk about a leadership class that has little interest in religion, no real attachments <laughs> to the nations. Uh, they're in charge of corporations, governments, u- universities, <laughs> the media. Oh, this is the cultural Marxism myth again. Although yeah, yeah, yeah. how major corporations are Marxist is no, another. Of course, uh, no. no uh, this is the point. Is is that they're actually they're not Marxists. They're they're capitalists. And they're, well, they're, they're yes. People who's who are driven ostensibly by profit, which is which is fine in and of itself, but mm. the, but when it becomes the only marker, when when the things that are actually important in life, the, the the things that we should all value together because of you know they're what make us decent people, things like actually caring about one another, you know, building the common good, building a society that cares for every person, um, these sorts of ideas, you know go right against what is the heart of our operating in the West these days. And if you say that, you get called a, a communist. <laughs> As Pope Francis knows quite well. <laughs> oh, well. Yes, but then you go back to what, you know, that bloke Jesus, you yeah, know, yeah. Joshua Bar Joseph, um, um, born in Bethlehem, was on about. And you, you can look at that without... You know, a theistic hat on it all, and yep. just say, "Well, look, what, what was what was this bloke trying to say?" Yeah. And that's communism, basically. I mean, everyone like it's, everyone it's, got loaves and fishes. It, it's not <laughs> communism, and that's the that's the silliness of it. There's a there's a brilliant article, and I could send it to you, and you can share it. I, I had um, Tim Lyons. I shared it with him recently on Twitter, and he. Uh, was quite happy with the article. It was written in the 60s by... Tim, Tim Lyons, an old school union heavy, he indeed, describes indeed, himself. So, indeed. Yeah, very much towards the lefty end of indeed. the thing. Um, but it was by a, a Dominican priest named Herbert McCabe who died in the year 2000. Um, so he wrote it in the 60s and it was basically arguing why Christianity in its true sense is far more revolutionary than anything... Um, Anything that Marx ever wrote was, and and that's the that's the the real nub of it. And I mean, the article is really interesting in that it offers a challenge to to priests and bishops that I feel is one that poor old Archbishop Gomez may maybe failed. <laughs> but it, it it is a it is a question of you know what are these things that are important in life, and and everyone knows you know you talk we go back to the christmas thing everyone knows it's those moments where we actually are with other people we love one another we we receive friendship we you know we we share a beer with a mate it's like that's got nothing to do with the global systems but yeah and nothing to do with jesus in a sense in a sense although in in, in another <laughs> sense it's got everything to do with jesus uh, because it was ultimately what because he liked to party well, no. <laughs> Well, no, because it was ultimately, I mean, he did like to party, but precisely because of that sense of community, friendship, of community, of, love, of, of family, of, yeah. en- of encounter, of, of, you know, of being with people in a way that isn't just, you know, you're a category, but you're a real person sitting before me. And that's, I mean, that's the sort of church that I want to be part of. That's what, that's why I'm, I am where I am, is that I can hopefully help build that wherever I'm sent to work. And Look, it's not easy, but it's it's. I think it's valuable. It's it's why I'm a why I'm a priest and not a politician. But it's you know it it can be sometimes disheartening when others share a different vision for what the what the whole thing's on about. Indeed, and and thank you for for sharing your your, your frustration, Carl. <laughs> Thank you.
So that's the main part of the conversation with Carl. There's a little more to come. But as I caught the train back to Sydney on the Thursday afternoon, the 11th of November, I had a, a lot to think about. The evening before I'd gone with Carl to Cargo, it's it's a little town, a village, population 596 at the last census, or the 2016 census. It's about half an hour's drive from Orange through some really quite lovely countryside. Now, the original plan for that night was a cemetery mass. That's a mass performed outdoors at the cemetery to commemorate the dead and reflect on the nature of death in life and so on. As it happened, uh, it was really wet weather, so the Mass moved to St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Cargo itself. And yes, it's another of those red brick churches I mentioned on on kind of a an open patch of ground with neatly trimmed grass. Now, Carl told me that normally you might get 11 or 12 people to the weekend mass there. This time, uh, there, there was nearly 20, and I'm told there would have been more, maybe up to 30, if there, there was actually a mass at the cemetery. A number of things struck me. One was that for the people of this village... The local church was important, uh, well, at least for those there, right, the Catholics. Another was that if it wasn't for one mother bringing her three kids along, and, you know, the kids clearly didn't really want to be there, I'd have been the youngest person there apart from Father Carl himself. And, of course, science years old. Most of the congregation were well older than me and had lived their entire life in or near this village. One old bloke, he was, I mean, he must have been in his 90s, was wondering whether the church could survive much longer with so few people in this this little town. And more personally, the smell of bare wood, the smell of dust, not musty dust, just that, that dusty feeling of bare wood in an old building brought back Memories of my childhood, uh, my parents, uh, you know, until I was about 10 years old, went to a local Methodist church in, in the little village of, of Nankita, south of Adelaide. Nankita, good heavens. And, and for a farming community, going to church on Sunday was when people actually caught up with each other as a group as opposed to just, you know, randomly at the shops or whatever. And it hit me that that, apart from anything else, apart from anything spiritual or anything like that, it's, it's a social function. And if the church is to close, well, you know, oh, we can watch the mass live stream from Orange or wherever... You know, watching a live stream on Facebook isn't isn't quite the same as meeting meeting your friends and family at church. On a on a completely separate note, I was also amused. Carl will like this. Uh, I was talking to people at the pub before I I left and took the train back to Sydney, the pub I was staying at, and. Uh, I, I was talking to the publican and she was asking me why I was in town and I said, well, it's mostly to, to come down and visit Father Carl. 
And just walking past me at that time was a bloke, I'm guessing 30s or 40s, maybe not. Anyway, he heard me mention Father Carl and said, oh, yeah, yeah, Father Carl married, married, married us. He's a good bloke. <laughs> Assuming it's the same Father Carl. There's another Father Carl in the, the district who's older. I bet it was the other Father Carl. But uh, going back to the other aspect, yeah, yeah, Orange is a nice place. Go and visit. You'll enjoy it. Finally, no, we're not finished yet. We are not finished yet. Each episode of this series, um, I'm asking our guests to predict the result of the forthcoming federal election, uh, whenever that's going to be, first half of 2022 sometime. Zooming ahead with the magic of editing, it is now Thursday the 18th of November, and I've got Father Carl back on the line. Uh, Carl, uh, welcome back. Wonderful to be back with you still. <laughs> How do you think things are going to go in the election? Look, um, you'd ha- yeah, I, it's hard to see how Morrison can win from here. It's hard to see how Morrison can win from here. There's not a lot that seems to be going in his favour of late. I think people are slowly turning off him. The one caveat is that I'm not convinced Labor knows how to win elections anymore. Well, um, yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, I would have said the same in 2019, didn't I? In fact, and, I probably did to anyone who, who would listen. But And many, many of us did, right? Indeed. indeed. Uh, including people, from what I'm told, from within the government themselves. They thought they were done and toast. But uh, they had holidays booked straight after the election. But, um, look, it's, again, I don't know the answer. You feel like it's probably going to be a Labor win, but... I say it with no confidence and no no sense that, you know, I, I wouldn't be looking to, to put money on the election, I'll put it that way. Well, we'll come to the odds in a moment. But I wanted to look uh, just at the, the most recent polls, and I use uh, the essential polling. It's done fortnightly, so the, the most recent figures we have are a, a week old. Prime Minister's approval rating dropped to 48%, the lowest of the last 12 months. 45% of Australians think it's time to change federal governments and give someone else a go. Um, But also, when we did catch up last week, you mentioned to me something that I'm going to call the goose factor, Mm. which is that Morrison has, in the last couple of weeks, made himself look a bit of a goose Mm. on the international stage. Mm. And I thought, yeah, whatever. But when that essential polling came through, it turns out that 54%, more than half of Australians reckon it's very important to maintain a good reputation amongst our neighbours and trading partners. And a further 39% say it's fairly important. So 93%, the vast majority of Australians say this is an important thing, Mm. but almost half of people say Morrison has undermined our international reputation during his tenure. Well, this is the problem. I I think Australians, we have this weird thing where we like it when people look viewer, uh, like think well of us. There's a, there's a YouTuber that I've been looking at lately who's been watching Australian singers and they get these huge views and comments and comments from Australians who are super excited at the idea that there's there's somebody watching an Australian. I think we feel a bit the same in politics. I think the idea that Morrison is going to, you know, he's going over the world and picking fights and annoying the French and all these things. I think everyone just cringes a little and says, oh, really, mate? 
we, we, that's not making us look good. And I think that'll turn people off him. I don't know. I can't say it with confidence. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, people say in polls what they're thinking at that moment, not that's when right. they're sitting there in the cardboard booth with their pencil in their hand. Indeed. Uh, and it's not a euphemism. And the the thing is, Anthony Green at the ABC has told me on numerous occasions there's a significant number, nearly all of those people who mm. fill in the undecided category, mm. only decide at that moment. Mm. And and as we've said, like the Liberal Party know how to win elections. They've won most of the elections in my lifetime, I think. You know, they in my lifetime, I think, the, well, particularly from when I was paying attention, the first election I really remember was in 1996. Labor lost that. They lost every election except 2007, which they won um, on the and back of the... And then 2010, they barely won. They didn't really win. They, they, yeah, they didn't yeah. get the majority. So it's... 2007 was the its time factor again. Effectively. And it was and it was a strong campaign on the back of, you know, the union movement and all the, the work choices stuff. Like it's... Kevin 07. That's which, right. Kevin 07, you know, good slogan. He, yeah. He, and all right, he it turns out that in, in reality, behind the scenes, he may not be quite the jovial, nice person. <laughs> he is on television, but that's not... I mean, but that's the point, isn't it? No, it's... He Labor, can work the cameras. Labor needs to work out how to win an election. As much as Morrison seems to be self-immolating at the moment, it's I'm not convinced they know how to win. Hmm. Well, as <laughs> as we know, gambling is the ultimate source of all wisdom. Sorry, Father <laughs> Carl. Uh, no, it's no, it's not, dear listener. Don't don't be silly. If you are going to gamble, please try to bet responsibly, etc. Only use money you don't need. For something that's, else. That's right. And I believe Father Carl thinks someone or something else may be the ultimate source of all wisdom, but that's a topic <laughs> <laughs> for another time. Okay, sports bets odds are the ones I'm using here. Over the last couple of weeks, they've settled into a, a favour, slightly in favour of a Labor win, uh, paying around $1.85 for a win. The other side, $1.90 or $1.95. So, yeah, not a lot of money to be made here. Last week this time, the odds did short to a dollar seventy-eight for a Labor win. Mm. Today, as we record, dollar eighty-two. Again, that's what the betting market's saying. Probably Labor, but no one wants to put a lot of money on it. No, no one's sure. No one's confident either way. And look, how can you be at the moment? Politics has become a very unpredictable game in many ways. And who knows? Who knows what will happen? Indeed. Well, look, uh, we may get you back on uh, closer to all of the chaos of the election. <laughs> Father Carl, thanks so much for your time uh, today and, of course, last week. A real joy. Thanks, still. That's all the edict for now. Uh, do go over to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and do the needful. This was a long episode and I had to travel. Wow. The next episode is with Dr. Space Junk herself. If you have trigger words at a conversation topic, get them to me by Tuesday the 23rd, lunchtime. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.